record. Okay, so we are in um, the book of First Kings, and we are now in chapter three this uh, tonight. And so um, we have been, you know, over the last few weeks, we've been transitioning from um, from David's reign on the throne to Solomon's. And the last couple of weeks, we've seen a few things that, that are of interest to us as far as the transition to Solomon's, uh, to Solomon's throne. David has died, and he has handed off his throne to Solomon. It wasn't without, um, without problems. Obviously, um, one massive problem was Solomon's brother and also son of David, uh, Adonijah, decided he wanted the throne and tried to take it from Solomon. And so we have uh, this you know, problem right at the beginning of first Kings where Solomon is the one charged by God to be on the throne. And, and Adonijah is the one who is trying to take the throne from him. And for the most part that it, that seems to be relatively settled. And, and yet at, as David passes away, he gives a charge to Solomon as he dies. And his charge really consists of two parts. One is uh, dealing with Solomon's commitments to the Lord and how Solomon has to adhere to the Mosaic covenant. He needs to adhere to the law and his obedience to the Lord concerning the law is going to determine his really his manhood, whether or not he is faithful to God's law is going to determine his success or failure in the kingdom of God. And, and if he, obviously if he disobeys, the Lord is going to replace him on the throne. Certainly the Lord is going to be true to his word with David, but David has many sons and there will be many sons from Solomon and so on that he can choose instead. And so um, still being faithful to David, he can, he can do anything he wants with David's progeny. And so um, he charges him to be faithful to the Lord uh, in terms of the Mosaic covenant. And then he also tells him that he's got to, um, he's got to squash the enemy and he's got to go after the people that are threats to the throne. And so, First among those threats is Adonijah himself. And Adonijah brings a lot of this on himself because Solomon tells him, look, if you're nice, if you're, if you come in peace, then, you know, I'm fine with you. I'll, I'll let you live. And so what Adonijah does is he sort of waits for his right opportune moment. And he tries to under, you know, sort of the cloak of darkness, if you will, or, or very, you know, um, in a sketchy sort of way goes to, uh, Solomon's mom Bathsheba and asks her to ask Solomon for Abishag, who is who was David's nurse. And in doing so, he is trying to sort of make a claim to the, the throne. And Solomon realizes this and quickly puts an end to it and has Adonijah killed. And so the first threat to the throne is taken care of in uh, Adonijah, in, in Adonijah's death. And then second, he has um, he squelches the threat of Avithar the, the the high priest, 
And the main reason there is because he had supported Adonijah in his quest for the throne. And so he has uh, Avithar exiled, basically has him put in um, kind of solitary confinement, a lot, sort of locked away in, in his house. And then he has the, the, the last threat, or really the last, pretty much the last threat, is Joab, who once he sees that, that Solomon is coming after all of David's enemies, Joab flees and grabs the horns of the altar and tries to kind of make a claim of sanctuary by hiding in, in the, the, you know, near the altar. And Solomon's men tell him to come out. He doesn't. And so they go in after him and kill him and pull him out and then kill him. Um, we also have um, Shimei, who, who is put on in house arrest, basically, inside the city of Jerusalem, which is a sanctuary city. And then he is he, he's told, look, if you leave the sanctuary city, then I'll kill you. He does eventually, after three years, leave the sanctuary city to go after one of his servants. And uh, Solomon does kill him. And so all of the threats to the throne are now really put away. All the, all the ones that David has charged him with are put away. And now we get to this portion in the text that can kind of be a little bit, I don't know if you want to say troubling, but, but the, it can be a little bit difficult to understand as far as what exactly is going on and what, how we should think about what is happening. But the, there, there becomes some very clear things that come to the, the surface that we need to talk about. And, um, and one in particular is now that Solomon is on the throne and now that he has squashed the opposition, the enemy, as it were, what does the Lord think about Solomon? And we're going to see that in this text. We're going to, we're going to get at least some confirmation of the Lord's presence with Solomon in some way. And it's going to be a cause for rejoicing. But it's it, like I said, it's not without confusion. And so we, we need to unpack a lot of some of the stuff that happens here um, in this text. And so sometime between uh, his accession to the throne, that means the accession means the time he got to the throne and the commencement of the temple construction in his fourth year. So he um, got to the throne in uh, 971 BC and his fourth year was uh, 967 BC, which is when the temple began to be constructed. So 967 to 966, right in there, is when the temple began to be constructed. So sometime between the commencement of the temple in his fourth year and when he took the throne, Solomon had made a treaty with the Pharaoh of Egypt, which included, among many things, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I want to let's read the passage here in three one to three. And I want you to see um, in this whole passage in, in chapter three of first Kings, if you can hear some of the reservation that's in the author's tone that seemed to be communicated in the author's tone when he's, when he, when he's doing this, uh, when he's, when he's saying this, when he's telling us this, look at what he says in three, one Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the King of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. People were sacrificing at the, at the high places, however, 
because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statue of his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Do you hear that in the tone of the sort of the, the way it's written is that there is some commendation for what Solomon has done, but then there's also some, a little bit of equivocation in the voice of the author that's going, he did this. However, it wasn't all good. There is some problems with it. And, and what are some of those problems? Well, chief among them is on the one hand, Solomon has seems to have this basic commitment, the author tells us, this basic commitment to God, which was shared with David. Uh, he, it says in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. However, there's also this tone where he, Solomon is carrying with him the seeds of his own destruction, In both, in two things, one is called out really specifically, I think in the text, that he's sacrificing in the high places, which I'll mention in just a minute. And there's this call out in the first verse of chapter three that he's marrying foreign women. That's not good. Um, And the reason we know that's not good is because of 1 Kings 11, 4, which is in your verse packet. It says, For when Solomon was old, this is at the end of Solomon's life. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of of David his father. And so here you have this, there's this uh, problem in the text. And a lot of People you'll read, uh, if, if you read any people that make comments about the text of 1 Kings, that they'll say, it's kind of ambiguous. We're not really sure how to take chapter 3, because on the one hand, chapter 3 is written with a positive tone to it. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Um, so we see that and we think, yeah, you know, that seems to be pretty good. And the author is telling us right away that, that Solomon loved the Lord. He is. And, and we are to take this as generally positive. The Lord is pleased with Solomon, as we're going to see in just a moment. At the same time, we have to hold two things in tension. And I think this is, it, I, I, would, I would like to think that on Wednesday night, part of what we uh, do is uh, kind of expose how to, read the Bible and how to understand the Bible and how to, you know, take the Bible's words very seriously. And so when you know that chapter 11 is coming in first Kings and you read some of these little hesitations in the voice of the author here, or when he gives you some details about Solomon marrying, you know, foreign women What we know is that it's not right now when Solomon is young that his heart is turned away from the Lord and toward other uh, gods. It's when he's old. And so what we find out is that these choices that he made when he was young, 
They don't present a problem right now. And so that's the reason it seems that the author can tell us Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. And yet at the same time, we have to read that going, yeah, but it's not always going to be that way. And the reason it's not always going to be that way is because Solomon is rejecting or, and maybe unknowingly so, and I think we're going to find out in in a second, kind of unknowingly, um, rejecting uh, what the Bible commands. The law of Moses says for the king to not take a bunch of wives from foreign lands because of that very reason they're going to turn your heart. And so Solomon is making some compromises while he's young out of, you know, ignorance or maybe he's just, he's, he is young. He's very young. Um, and, but he's making some of these compromises now that are really going to, you know, for lack of a better expression, bite him in the rear end later on. And it's the author makes it abundantly clear in chapter 11. It was when he was old that all of these wives, all of these compromises that he made came to actually bite him in the end and turn his heart away from the Lord. And that's what ended up, you know, doing him in, so to speak. And so, um, so we, we have to kind of keep both of these things in tension. We see, well, that's not good. Solomon, you know, I read verse one and I'm like, I thought it wasn't okay to marry foreign women. And it's not. At the same time, we also have to keep in tension that the Lord is very patient with both ignorance, with, uh, with sinners. Thank the Lord he is because every last one of us are. And so he, he is patient and so that's true, even of Solomon, as we're, we're going to find out. He is patient, but at the same time, Solomon has an obligation to be obedient to the Lord. And, and there's already these little compromises early on that are, are going to end up doing him in. So while Solomon uh, is going to receive in 1 Kings his fair share of criticism, it seems that the author right now is not going to criticize him, at least early on, for his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. And so we can also look at this another way in that it's sort of pointing to the fact that as king, there is um, a a fulfillment or a not maybe not fulfillment is the right word, but sort of a a, you kind of hear the promises to Abraham that he's going to bless the nations. And here is Solomon uh, making, giving a blessing from the Lord, from the king, the nation of the Lord toward the nation of Egypt who formerly enslaved them. This is probably not, this is, I don't think this is at all a, uh, a, a deal where Pharaoh is trying to put Solomon under him, but more that Pharaoh sees Solomon as equals in, you know, international relations that they, because Honestly, we have virtually no record of Pharaoh of any Pharaoh ever giving his daughter to any king um, internationally. That that that's pretty unheard of. And so for Pharaoh to do that here, that's a big thing. That that sees Solomon as equals, maybe even seeing Solomon as someone he's trying to appeal to, maybe to get favor to or cur- curry favor in some way. Pharaoh certainly took daughters from other kings, but giving his own daughter away, that, that's not something that we have a lot of record of at all. 
And so for him to do that here shows you the relationship he has with a foreign nation. So we could see this in some ways, hey, the kingdom of the Lord is becoming a blessing to other nations in their partnership and in their, in their uh, international relations. Um, however, we also see that later, obviously, Solomon is going to commit himself to multiple sinful marriages. And so that also tells us that while Solomon and the, the king of God's kingdom, the spearhead, if you will, of God's kingdom is, you know, uh, giving some signs of fulfillment of the promise that was originally made to Abraham. We also see uh, it's not quite complete yet because Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter might better point us to Christ because we see in Christ a, a a king who's actually going to establish the kingdom of God and take for himself a bride from uh, pagan nations. And yet he's not, his heart isn't going to be turned away from his father. And yet he's going to remain faithful to his father. So while Solomon kind of gives hints of the fulfillment of the kingdom, we also see toward the end of his kingdom, it's not going to come to fruition uh, because really We've, we're going to find out throughout the Old Testament, Israel is incapable of bringing about fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises or the kingdom of God because, well, we're sinful humanity. And it's going to take Christ himself to come in and actually begin to fulfill this, um, this commitment uh, to the Lord and fulfill the promises that God has made. Um, but it, it, I think it is really interesting to think about because it's been a while since we've done this because we've been so consumed with David. But if you remember when we first started all of this, the hope was really to not just walk through the biblical text. We definitely want to do that. But we also want to consider what are the political things that are going on in the world around the kings right now? What are some of the, the, you know, the considerations that they're making that sort of undergird the text and that we see in history as well that are complementing the text and help us to better understand the text. And so we know that based on the time period that Solomon reigned, the Pharaoh that's on the throne is Siamun. Uh, and he was, he ruled the 21st dynasty in Egypt and he reigned from 978 to 959 in Egypt. Now, what that tells us, especially in regards to the time period that Solomon is in, um, we, you know, because you, you have the question of why would the Pharaoh of Egypt do something so unprecedented as to give his daughter to Solomon? We're going to find out later on, he actually doesn't just give his daughter to Solomon. He also gives a portion of land and some people that he conquered in between Egypt and the nation of Israel. So you see the nation of Israel that's all surrounding Jericho right there. You have Jericho and on the map there to the right, you have Jericho. The little tiny body of water just to the south and east of Jericho is the Dead Sea. And that little strip going, going north of that is uh, the Jordan River, obviously, and then you have Egypt here. And so Egypt has conquered people in between Egypt and, um, and Israel, and the 
Pharaoh is not only going to give his daughter, he's also going to give the people. We're not going to find that out until chapter nine, but he, he does. And so um, the question is, why would he do that? Well, we also know about this time that there is uh, increasing militants and imperialism of the Assyrians to the north and east of Israel. So you see this little, on the edge of the map is the letter E, and then it's par- partially the, the letter U, and it's cut off. That's the Euphrates River that it's labeling. And so right up near the Euphrates River, just to the north and east of that, are the, is where the Assyrians are, are camped out. And, um, and so uh, if you think about this, remember way back, eons ago, when we first talked about this, we were looking at the geography of the land and this area that's in green here, we called the Fertile Crescent. And it's, it's, we called it the Fertile Crescent because it's kind of shaped in this little crescent shape and it goes all the way over to Mesopotamia so if you keep going east of the Euphrates you get this area that follows along the Euphrates um, called the Mesopotamian region and that goes that goes all the way down um, uh, to the the Red Sea in that that area and so um, so that that area is really important and the reason it's really important is because I don't know if you've seen pictures of this area but you can probably see from the map there's a whole lot of desert over there and these areas in particular are very fertile uh because they're obviously near rivers and so it's it's really an important piece of property and this became actually a really uh interesting piece for us i think as the children of israel are moving into um the promised land that area that they came to occupy in Canaan is prime real estate. I mean, really. I we should go look at the Argus moon, and Gladys was listening to prayer meeting. He said, tell her to quit, that it's God's nature. <laughs> is it, I can't, is that, was that to me, or who was that? Sorry. Anyway, uh, I, I didn't know if somebody was asking a question at first or what, but sorry. Um, so... This area of the Fertile Crescent is prime real estate. And what we see in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings is that the children of Israel walk straight into prime real estate and just set up camp in the land. And you'll, so, and the reason I think that that's important is you'll hear many people that are critics of the Bible that will say, will say things like, well, there's no evidence of things like this happening. Uh, there's, you know, you read the Old Testament, there's no evidence of any, any of this actually taking place. How did the children of Israel come to occupy the land of Canaan? Uh, that is no small miracle. That's a huge miracle. That's prime real estate and would have been incredibly, I mean, would have been fought over. And so what you've got now in this time period, in about the nine, or late 970s, early 960s, is... Solomon has taken the throne. He has obviously proven himself, and David has proven that the nation of Israel is not to be messed with. They have expanded their borders. Solomon has taken over an incredible kingdom, and um, and the Assyrians are to the north and east of Israel, and they're getting big as well. And here Egypt is, uh, down here in the south, realizing that either one of these two kingdoms might see Egypt as a really powerful 
uh, place and a stronghold that they might try to move in and set up their kingdom in and extend their borders. And Israel has already done some of that. And so what do you think uh, a Pharaoh is trying to do? Now, we know about Siamun that he is not that big into international relations. And Egypt, by and large, in this time period, didn't really get into conquering a lot of lands. And so had kind of some weaker Pharaohs. And so what is he going to do? He's mostly concerned about domestic policy. And so what is he going to do? Well, his best bet is to try to make friends with somebody. And of the two, Assyria and Israel, it makes far more sense to be good friends with Israel than it does Assyria. Because Israel can both can, is their closest neighbor, and so that lessens the likelihood that Israel is going to move into Egypt and conquer them. And also, Israel will form an unnecessary buffer between them and Assyria, between Egypt and Assyria. So if Assyria moves in, then they've got to go through Israel first before they get to Egypt. So it accomplishes two goals, and so it's likely that, the, that Pharaoh is giving his daughter to, to Solomon as a sign of peace to kind of go, hey, uh, let's, um, let's be friends. And you, you kind of keep the Assyrians at bay. And so that's probably what's going on here. Now, as I said, David has left Solomon a significant kingdom. And they, they've conquered Philistia. They've conquered Moab. Ammon, Edom, Syria, and all of these armies had fallen to Israel and had become really part of Israel or are paying tribute to Israel in some way. And so this presented Solomon, not with really a a military problem, but an administrative problem. Solomon is really young and he's going to confess that to the Lord. I'm young. I don't know what I'm doing. And so He's taken over this kingdom that's incredibly vast, that's got a ton of money. All of these nations are paying money to Israel, that other nations are giving daughters to, to, to Solomon. He's really young, and he's thinking, how am I going to run this place? He's got an administrative problem on his hands. And so Solomon immediately became a major player in international affairs. Imagine just for a second We think Solomon was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years old when he took over the throne. And so if he's 20 years old, imagine the weight of all of that. You've got kings giving you their daughters. You have people talking international politics, and you've got the lingo goes straight over your head. You've got people that are paying dues to you and you've got to keep that going. And somehow you've got to keep them really kind of at bay under your thumb. You've got Assyria out to the North and East who are getting bigger and stronger and may pose a threat sometime in the near future. You've got all of these things going on at once and you're 20 years old. How are you possibly going to manage that? And so we see in this text that Solomon comes to maybe just a little bit of a crisis. And so what Solomon is going to do is he's going to request wisdom from the Lord, which is a great move. I mean, it's the best move that he could possibly have made. 
is to ask for wisdom from the Lord. And we see that he's that this passage is going to, we've got two ends of this passage. One, Solomon is at Gibeon in the, and he's, he's near the Mosaic tabernacle. And then the other, at other end of the passage, he's in Jerusalem near the, the thing that David had constructed for the ark. Remember, he made this sort of makeshift tent and the ark of the covenant sits there. So right now in the land, you have the tabernacle, the one that Moses took through the wilderness that is set up at Gibeon. And you have the um, ark of the covenant that is in Jerusalem. And it just has this, you know, little tent that's around it. And so there's kind of two places of worship for Solomon. And so let's read the the passage here where Solomon actually requests wisdom from the Lord. It's starting in verse four. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was uh, the great high place. Solomon used to offer uh, a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great And steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him from this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word, but behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you Also, what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So, and Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Okay, so he's got Gibeon and he's got Jerusalem. That Gibeon's at the beginning, Jerusalem is at the end, and in between there is a dream that in which the Lord appears to him. And Solomon's desire... Um, oh, wait, sorry, back up. That I got too far ahead of myself. And there's, there's a legitimate concern for Solomon's judgment early on, as I've already mentioned, that he's married a lot of, he's, he's marrying foreign women, and he's sacrificing at the high places. The high places is not um, insignificant, 
we do find out that at Gibeon and at uh, at Gibeon is a high place, and it's considered. He says the great high place in the text, and that probably means that that's because that's where the the uh, tabernacle of of the Lord, the the tent that Moses carried through the wilderness was sitting. And so he went there first to sacrifice because it was a probably a significant place. However, high places in general in the king in the books book of kings tends to mean that there's multiple forms of worship that go on there. And usually it's not exclusively to the Lord. But what we find out is that part of the reason that people are at these high places, we already see the problem in the text, is that it's because they had no other place to go. There was no central place of worship. And he says that in verse 2, no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. And so the people are there, and you can tell in the text, the author is kind of waiting this is a big problem and we need to get this solved really fast. And Solomon's going to do that. But that's, so that's part of the reason the high places are there, but still you hear marrying foreign women going to high places. It makes me sort of uneasy. However, what we do see is that God does seem pleased with Solomon's piety and recognizes Solomon is relatively ignorant. He doesn't know he's telling the Lord, I don't, understand i'm young i'm i'm a child he says and i don't know how to go out or come in i don't know how to do anything and so i need help i need you to give me a discerning mind and by the lord appearing to him in a dream and confirming that he's going to give to him both wisdom he's going to give him a long life he's going to give him riches is essentially a reaffirmation of the davidic covenant to Solomon. So this is us seeing in the text that although Solomon is making some some choices that right now are they're going to lead to bad things eventually. Uh we do know that the Lord is gracious and merciful and he is pleased with Solomon's desire for a, a, a an upright heart. And really what Solomon's desire for is literally an obedient or a listening heart. That's what he he desires for. And he he wants to know, he wants to be able to administer justice in Israel. And justice can only emerge when the king is able to distinguish between right and wrong, literally between good and evil. And so he is he is wanting to be able to discern between good and evil. We see that in verse 9. Um, so in order to exercise the justice that God requires for his, uh, on his throne, in order to exemplify the kingdom of God before the people, and in order to adjudicate all of their, um, we'll say problems, the king has to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. There's no other way to do it. Um, that is pertinent I think for our own day as the topic of justice continues to be to come to the top is um, well, in order to exercise true justice, we have to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. And often it seems the case in our country, perhaps we have a problem there uh, more than anything. So um, although uh, first Kings does not say we don't see 
exactly why in first Kings, um, that Gibeon was most important. We find out in second Chronicles one, five to six, that it's because that's where the, the tabernacle is. That's where I got that information from. So see verse five, it says uh, in your verse packet, moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was, which was at the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Um, so, um, so there you have it. That's why he went there was because of the Mosaic Tabernacle. Um, so when the king awakes from this life-changing dream, he seals the agreement. Um, and how does he do that? He does it by a celebration with sacrifices and a feast there in Jerusalem. And he proves his sincerity and determination to keep the covenant. So what we see in this text is that God is approving of Solomon. Um, it's been, God's approval of Solomon has been clarified. We see that not only has Solomon taken the throne, but that God is determined to continue to bless him as the divine, uh, as the son of David, as the, the one divinely chosen to be on the throne. And so, uh, it, it gives us that assurance that by God appearing to him and giving him what he desired, that, that, that that's what that's telling us. Now, all right, having been promised wisdom, Solomon is now going to be put to the test. So this is uh, the, the point of this whole passage is demonstrating not only that the Lord approves of Solomon, but he approves the evidence of his approval of Solomon is in the wisdom that Solomon has wisdom to adjudicate and, and get and bring the justice of the Lord to the people. And so Solomon has the insight, it seems to see the difference between just and unjust persons, even when he has no corroborating evidence. And so we see that in this last passage of chapter three, when Solomon decides to cut the baby, uh, as so often is, is the phrase that we use. Look at verse 16. It's a very odd court case. Um, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman uh, and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. So there, Solomon has no corroborating evidence. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast, and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. A mama knows her child. But the, woman, but the other woman said, no, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. 
Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son, uh, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. It's a classic, she said, she said. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword had been, was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So this is the classic picture of Solomon exercising justice um, and the kind of justice that is true of the kingdom of God is getting to the, the solution to the problem and determining rightly what the solution should be without having any evidence per se to really go on. And so when, the, when this verdict becomes public knowledge, obviously the nation is fearing the king. Literally, they're in awe of him. They feared him. And why? Because he was able to, uh, to do this. God had obviously given to him wisdom. So Israel now is seeing, and that's what we see too when we read this passage, that the wisdom of God is in his heart to do justice. God has obviously imparted this to him. So what we see promised in the first half of the passage comes true in the latter half of the passage. His, the, the rightful king is on the throne. That has been confirmed. Why? Because God has really granted him wisdom to adjudicate um, the, the problems within the kingdom and exercise justice inside the kingdom. And if that is so, then the nation is going to flourish under his leadership. That, that's sort of the promise that we have or what's brimming in, the, in this passage is, and this expectation as we go into chapter four and following is that, hey, we might actually have something here with Solomon. We have the, the, the king of the kingdom of God who is going to, who is, who is clearly wise. God is clearly blessed. The kingdom is going to flourish. He's going to have a long life. He's going to have riches and he's going to follow after the Lord. And the Lord has blessed him because the Lord has obviously given to him wisdom. And so what we also know is that we're in good hands if we're in his nation, that he, we are going to be able to go to him and he is going to be able to exercise basically the kind of wisdom that would come straight from the mouth of God himself to us. And where we're going to go is in a good direction. And so, so far, Solomon has been faithful uh, to the God who has kept the promises uh, made to the new king. So uh, we leave chapter three with a very uh, 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 heightened optimism that perhaps Solomon is this sort of new Adam figure that's coming. And what we're going to see is that this new Adam figure, this head of the kingdom of God, is going to establish the temple and the temple is going to have a lot of underpinnings of the underpinnings of the Garden of Eden within it. And so it, it kind of seems to establish this, this hope 
that perhaps God's kingdom really is coming and is really going to be established with Solomon on the throne. But then it'll end tragically. So uh, never fear. <laughs> Questions? I can't see anybody, so it's disconcerting. Oh, there we go. We have the McKinleys back. Okay, there we go. We got the mobs. Okay. <laughs> Questions? I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe I kind of just missed part of the discussion, but earlier when we were talking about uh, you know the, the, the temple hadn't been built yet, and so there were multiple hey. places, right? And they were worshiping. What was, I mean, what? so what was the problem with that, with there being multiple places? I mean, as long as they were not worshiping other gods, right? Bingo. That's it. Is when, and, and honestly, we have, we have little to go on in first Kings three. So, but here's what, here's what we know is that when the high places are mentioned in first Kings in general, that's not a good thing. And so you're going to see in first and second Kings, the high, the, the value of a king is based on a couple of things. Did he do what was wicked in the sight of the Lord? And did he tear down the high places, high places that were pagan worship happened. And so does he go in and tear down the high places simply by the author referring to the tabernacle as sitting on a high place probably means that there was not just worship of the Lord that was going on there. So, I say that more to say, not to say what Solomon was doing was pagan worship, but to say there's probably some risque things going on there um, just by virtue of the, of the way the author describes it. And so, um, but obviously the Lord either is patient through that, overlooks that, gives to Solomon wisdom, understand that it's done in ignorance or what have you, and and knows that the temple is going to be established pretty soon. But after that temple is established, kings are going to be held accountable for what they do with the high places. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I just, I just make sure there wasn't, it wasn't necessarily there's anything wrong with worshiping multiple places. It's just worshiping other gods other than Yahweh. Right, right, right. Yeah. So if that's what was going on there, then the author's kind of going, I'm kind of nervous about this. You know, that's like not ideal, but okay, let's move along with the story, you know? And, uh, you know, so. Yeah. Good question. Other questions? Well, okay. I got a question. Go ahead. Who is talking? Author didn't say anything about two prostitutes coming to Solomon. That's not a problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, not uh, not good, right? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, don't really know what to do with that other than to say the problem in the text is really not dealing with the prostitute itself or the prostitution as a sin. Um, this is, you know, this is a really hard part about reading through the old Testament and you see this, I mean, this, this problem is dealt with squarely in the book of Job 
is that God doesn't adjudicate all the problems right then and there. There's rampant wickedness. He doesn't deal with it all right there on the spot, right? So, you know, the, the I've said this a couple times that, you know, the, the Old Testament, the Bible in general is telling us what happened, not necessarily recommending to us what is good always, right? So you see in the book of Judges, boy, this is really the case in the book of Judges. Uh, there's rape, murder, there's incest in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of things the Bible's not, you know, recommending those things. And sometimes the nation still receives blessing even in the midst of such rampant wickedness. And what it tells us is a couple of things. One, the Lord is patient and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. And uh, he has to be, otherwise we would be consumed, all of us. And yet on the other hand, he is just, he is righteous. And so what we trust in the long run, none of that ever pays off for the people that actually commit wickedness. So, I mean, you see like even in Joab's case, Joab did a lot of things that we, we've, we've talked about for the last few weeks that have, have been kind of like, eh, that wasn't really great, but it did seem, he, does, he doesn't seem to pay for it. Well, he gets it in the end. And certainly he faces the judgment of God on the other side too. So, um, you know, when it comes to things like that, like two prostitutes standing before the king, what do you do with that? Um, well, I mean, the author just seems to go past it and go, obviously, yes, that's not good. But we're really focusing on what Solomon did uh, in the midst of this and adjudicating it. And he wasn't necessarily uh, going after their sin. So it's sort of a, you, you kind of have to, take what the author is saying and not necessarily take it as a recommendation or that the author is unaware that that's sin and needs to be punished, but simply that our concerns are about these other things more so than this, this thing here. So I guess you're muted. Still muted. Once. I mean, so that's kind of a bad reading of it, but, uh, you were muted for most of that. I didn't hear most of what you said. Start over. It's just you can read scripture and use it as a license to sin because obviously sure. these people got away with it. But I don't think that's the proper reading. No, no, no. Paul talked you know, later, let us sin so the grace of God abounds. That's, no, don't you dare do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, you never would it be a license for anything like that. For sure. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Well, let's um, pray and then we'll, we'll go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to read your word. And, and um, the, uh, your word tells us, you know, it, it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. Uh, James reminds us. Um, that we too should ask for wisdom and that you give liberally and without reproach to anyone who asks in faith without any doubting. 
And um, so we trust that in asking for wisdom, you give that to us. And your word promises is that you will. And with that wisdom, we too can discern right from wrong, good from evil. We can understand and grow in your word. We, um, we can, as a church, come together as a body. Um, we can desire uh, more of your word to feed us. Um, we desire more of, uh, of, of what you offer and less of what the world offers. We um, are, grow more pleased uh, by the things that you offer rather than the, what the world offers. All of that is through the wisdom that you provide. And so we ask for it. Give it to us. Uh, as much as you can spare, we, we will take. And we trust that you will, that you'll heap that on us, on our congregation. Those that are here for this Bible study, those who are, are, are not, who are part of our body that come on Sunday morning or, or watch on Sunday morning. Um, we pray that you would uh, empty the storehouses of heaven, uh, of wisdom on us, that we may be able to discern right and wrong, that we may be able to rightly divide the word of truth that we may have an appetite for your word to feast on it, that it may fuel us through the week uh, as we make decisions. And so I, I pray that you would give to us that. Um, we also know that you have given to us wisdom in Christ, that he is wisdom. And he uh, tells us to come to him and all who labor and are heavy laden, um, that we can, uh, take his yoke upon us because his uh, it, it's, you know, he is um, gentle and lowly in heart and, and we can find rest there in Christ. And so he is wisdom personified and you have given to him to us. So I pray that through all of this, we continue to seek after Christ, that our hearts are turned in affection toward him um, and entrusting our future to him. And so we, we pray that all of this would lead toward the glorification of his name in our mouths and in our lives. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.